Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Empowered Love with author, self-mastery coach, and relationship expert, Melanie Tanya Evans. Take back your power, heal your soul, and set yourself free. Free through Empowered Love. And now your host of Empowered Love, Melanie Tanya Evans. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Empowered Love radio show, and I'm Mel, and I have another Thriver show today, and this is like all the Thriver shows are. It's a very, very special show, and what is incredible, incredibly special about it is through listening to it and reading about it on the blog, you will understand that this lady created a breakthrough legally with custody that was nothing short of a miracle and just uh, totally unprecedented in today's legal world. So I'm going to get started on this show. So Premi, thank you so much for coming forward and sharing your story. Thank you so much, Melanie. Let's get started. So Premi, let's give the listeners a rundown of your narcissistic experience and what happened. Okay, well, uh, it started off that I met my husband when I had um, just turned 20. He was very, very charming, very thoughtful, very handsome. Um, He had a very charismatic voice. Um, All his stories just made him even more um, charismatic to me and in front of other people. And he just charmed me unimaginably, and I truly just felt like a princess in a fairy tale. Um, He had also a spiritual side to him, and he was always talking about his philosophy, and that philosophy was roughly tied to Sufism. Um, And that just went right along with my things that were I was beginning to learn and grow. It just seemed to be so natural that um, I would meet him. And he was just so handsome and athletic. Um, But later on, you know, a long time later on, I started to discover that all that stuff at the beginning were just mostly lies, including his age. Um, He never told me the truth about his age. I found out years later. Um, I was young and he I was 20, he was 35. Um, He said he was 24. And he was... um, he said that he was a big soccer star, and none of that was true. He was also, in fact, already married, and I didn't know that. He lied, yeah. but he wasn't. <laughs> so, you know, all these stories about how great he was, they just eventually turned out to be fake, and they all unraveled years later. Um, and that's when I was, I realized all of it when I started to come out of the brainwashing and the numbness that I had ended up being in for years. We were together 13 years. So um, other parts of that relationship were that I had never had alcohol until that year, but he was a heavy drinker and a smoker. And so I just wasn't familiar with that lifestyle at all. I didn't even know what a problem drinker, what the symptoms would be like or anything. 
Um, and then later on, I found out he used drugs. So I and I didn't even really know all that until years later. Um, but so so basically, after that first month of just total fun, pleasure, attention, and I was brand new in a new city, and it just was all fun. Um, and I had come from a very rural place in the southeast of the U.S. And right, you know, after that first month, that's when he started getting violent and prone to moods. But I was completely hooked by that time and just was no way I was going to leave him. Um, so when I look back, some there were there were definitely tons of warning signs, which... I didn't even notice. Um, and the first one was on our first real date. I was going to meet him at a park in New York City, and on the way I saw a homeless man that I saw every single day. And he asked me for f- money for food, and I said, um, when I saw that the narc wasn't there, I said, okay, I'll buy you some food at the diner across the street so I took him and I bought him a sandwich um, but when I got back the narc was there and he was giving me this weird silent treatment and um, I knew something was wrong and he got angry and said that I should go with a homeless man and he couldn't trust me now and what kind of a woman was I and I just felt like I just have to apologize and he'll understand, but there was nothing I could say that would make him believe me. And he, in fact, held that over me for years. He'd always refer to it. And that's mm, the that's point so where, you know, I I should have walked away. And that's when you, you know, if you tell your daughter's advice, that's when you say walk away. But I didn't walk away. I felt like I had to make it up to him. Um there's something inside of me that changed when I met him or clicked on, you know, the peptides were went into full force and Absolutely. I just it was like from that moment my life altered. And so there were lots and lots of experiences like that. Um the first month and the next couple of months. Um another really pivotal one was we took a car trip about three months after that, um, up to Canada to visit some of his family. And as soon as we got in the car and we were driving away, he got very upset with me about the clothing that I had brought. Well, I didn't have a lot of choices because I was a college student and I was dressing my age. And he just really laid it on heavy. And just... I was just crying and upset, and again, you know, I had to make it up to him. Mm. Um, So there was lots of demeaning, demoralizing moments like that between us in private, and the whole trip was terrible. And on the way back was the first time that he just was very violent sexually with me. Um, That Mm. was the first time. So he also did things like setting me up to be humiliated in public. Um, and I just was completely clueless. I Once I got to know his family, he started treating me like a trophy wife, though, um, always talking about how smart I was and beautiful and all this. 
But when we were alone, it was always opposite. Um, He, what else? He manipulated me constantly, and he spent a lot of energy isolating me from my friends and family the first year and consecutive years, all the way through my college experience. Um, He... He just really did not like my father. He never had met my father, but he already had his opinions. Um, and I could, another thing was I could never be out of reach from him. And that was before I had a cell phone or anything like that. And so I always had to be around my phone or page him, you know, when I got done with school. But he would go away for days and it would upset me. Um, I would be unable to leave the phone. I'd just be in this horrible state of depression or panic. It was just terrible and because I was obsessed with him. And I just, I was just fixated on getting attention from him, but I couldn't have told anyone that. I didn't know that um, consciously that that's what it was. I just felt horrible, like, you know, an addict wanting their fix. And there was just no way that I could have ever considered walking away. I just thought it was true love and that no one understood. And I always kept figuring, trying to understand why love felt that way. So then three years passed, and by my senior year of college, I was I had contemplated suicide a lot. Um, and I had also seriously tried to commit it once. I remember sitting in the kitchen of my apartment for hours with a knife to my wrist, just crying and alone. Um, and, you know, while all my friends were having this a college experience and creating lifetime friendships. And one night I tried to hang myself, and luckily I was not successful. So... And it's hard to go back and think about those things because they're just so far from my reality now. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of violence by that point. Um, he hit me, forced sex on me. I remember the police were called a couple of times by neighbors. Um, and I had a roommate then too, but I hid everything from her. And she never knew, and nobody knew, not even my family. So after college, I got a job um, working, it was very close to the World Trade Towers, and I was there on the day that the attacks happened and the towers came down and I witnessed Mm -hmm. it. And I had recently, it was very traumatic for me, I um, I had worked at a company before that company that relocated to the 80th floor and everybody perished that day that I had known. And on top of it, my mom had died just a couple months earlier, and it was completely an unknown disease, and it was just, she got sick, and a month later she died Mm. suddenly. And I think I was, you know, in total shock. I don't think I even came out of that shock until 10 years later. It just kind of got buried in all the other stuff that was happening. And so... He invited me to move with him to Detroit, where he had family. 
And so I drove, I packed up my apartment and drove a van of my belongings there to meet him. And the first day that I arrived, we went to a storage unit and were unpacking my things and he got so mad at me. I never had a person, witnessed a person that mad before in my life. And it was about how badly I had packed the things and what kind of things that I owned. And Mm -hmm. he yelled at me for three days, night and day. And after that day, I was completely numb. And I never really came out of it until years and years later. So that was, you know, a really big point. It was like, yeah, it was like, okay, now he had me in this place where no one knew me. And um, after yelling at me like that, I wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really about being kicked while you're down, isn't it? Yeah. So at that point, you know, we were living together. And so I was trying to learn what it was like to live with him and to make things peaceful at home. Um, And I was trying to be a good partner, trying to understand what it was that to him was a good partner because I never could be that. I'd always mess up whatever it was and have no idea how or why or what I did. And um, during that time, I became pregnant and um, I, I really wanted us to be married because I wanted my to have my um, dad be part of that. Um, But then I found out that I couldn't marry him because he was already married. And during that time, you know, basically throughout our whole relationship, I was the main breadwinner. But during that time, he would come up with money from here and there, but he never, ever told me from where he got it. Um, He wouldn't let me ask him where it was from and, I ended up helping him with the divorce. I did all the paperwork. And then we eventually just had a fake wedding and invited my dad and my sister. Um, And it was fake because we didn't really sign the legal paperwork um, with this county um, because he just said lots of things like his love for me didn't need government permission and, and he just wouldn't do it. But I ended up marrying him actually in 2007 um, because he was had high cholesterol and I just wanted to put him on my health insurance. <laughs> so that's how that happened. Um, and over the years, he just became more and more violent and I just hid everything from everybody. You know, I was totally isolated, totally alone. Um, I didn't know anybody there. I just knew his family. Um, and he controlled everything in my life. He controlled even how much time I would spend with our daughters when he was at home. He made sure I was never serving them more than him. Um, He wouldn't even allow me to read to them at night. He would always make a fuss over it, that I needed to be out with him. And he wouldn't let me take my daughter in the shower with me. It's very weird. And he, um, I remember when my first daughter was born, he wouldn't even let me go outside with her. 
just to walk on the street for three months. So, and during all this time, he just ranted at me constantly about my inability to be a good mother. And that was a huge trigger for me because I wanted to be a good mother. I wanted to prove myself. I wanted him to say, you're the best mother ever. I'm so glad you're my wife. You know? mm-hmm. um, and, then, and then the worst part of all of this was he would argue me into confusion. And he would just ask me the same questions over and over and over until I became confused And then at the end of that, he would say that I was crazy and needed psychological help. And one time I actually seriously wanted to get it because I thought I was crazy too. But then he talked me out of it. (laughs) And he just was toying with me and he enjoyed it. Now looking back, I see I could never see how somebody could enjoy doing that. Um, But he did. And and he liked doing it because he knew that he had my total obedience. Um, He would just emotionally, verbally, physically beat me down. And then he would flip into this kind of sweet person and then just make me repeat that I was his over and over and over. He'd make me repeat phrases like, um, like he loves me over and over and over. Um, And I just remember the feeling of being completely gone. Like, there was nothing left of me. I barely had a brain, kind of. I just was exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally. And there was just nothing left. I was just, like, jello. And um, so kind of going back in time, before we went out to Detroit, um, the night before my graduation, from college, he told me that he would find me and kill me if I ever tried to leave him. And he just said that to me many times after that day, and I really, truly believed him. Um, And he, you know, he'd do things like checking through my purse, and he'd always accuse me of being unfaithful. And the worst part of it was that he used God and spirituality to weave a web of a crazy web of words and rules and just crazy making and mm-hmm. I could never unravel it. A lot of narcissists that have done that, absolutely. Yeah, and I just, that was really hard for me because right before I had met him, I really, for the first time, realized that I believed in God and mm-hmm. <laughs> he, was a, he was the next person I met. <laughs> Yeah. And his version of spirituality was so warped. Yes. So it happens to yeah. a lot of spiritual people on their journey that they come across a <laughs> narcissist that is. Uh, yeah, it's, it's strange because you're totally ready to give yourself to God, and then somebody like that shows up, and you're right. You're just ready to give yourself, but it's totally wrong person, <laughs> wrong time. Yeah, yeah. and um, it's all about helping getting the wounds out of the way that we need to have brought up to clear in order to be with God. Yes, that's so true. Mm. Yep. So years passed. Um, years passed. And um, you know what's really interesting, though, Melanie, when you say that is um, 
About the fourth day that I met him, he found a book on the street. And the book was called Autobiography of a Yogi, which later on that book became very important for me. It helped me to get away from him. And I didn't read it at that point because I thought I was having so much fun with him and I forgot about it. But then years later when I left him, a friend gave me that same book and I read it and I realized it was like it had all the answers in it. (laughs) But I just wasn't ready to read it back then. That's right. It wasn't the time yet. You had to go through what you did. But it was just a little reminder like the things we go through, you know, there's always a higher power looking on looking after Absolutely. you. So so just getting back to, you know, what the experience was like. Um and you know, years passed. We moved a bunch of times. Um at this point I had two kids. They were starting to get to be a school age and I I got a teaching license um and began teaching down in Georgia. And when things got to their lowest point, he had forced me to quit my job as a teacher, a kindergarten teacher, and he'd been using my money to support his failing business. And then we got evicted from our house, and it was freezing February weather. And I somehow found a place, a shelter we could get to. It was an abandoned house with no electricity, there were leaks in the roof, it was raining, but it was within walking distance to his restaurant and walking distance to my daughter's school. So I just thought it was temporary. And so it was just a nightmare. He had these terrible people around me and the kids all the time. They were drug users and just really scary people. And finally, um, I went to, I just knew we couldn't stay in that place anymore. And then I found out someone had committed suicide there very recently. And so I went to St. Vincent de Paul Society, and they helped me to get an apartment. They gave me the money for the security deposit. And so then my daughter was in school, but he wouldn't allow my youngest daughter to go to preschool. And he had me watch her and work at the restaurant he was running. And he was able to, now in retrospect, I know that was, he was able to keep an eye on me. I was just really, (coughs) I couldn't go anywhere, do anything. At that point, he was always watching me. Um, And also I think that when we moved to Atlanta, this was a big issue there were two girls from college that I knew in Atlanta, and he did not like the fact that I knew those women. Um, and I, it was a big threat to him. So he was trying to close in and make sure that I was always around him. Um, so one night he came home. He was very, very drunk and very, very angry. And this particular night... I just, when he started to um, hit me and push me, I knew that I just saw in my heart that this was the last night I was going to be alive because it was just that vibration, everything that he was doing and saying. It was so scary and painful. And um, 
And then my youngest daughter walked into the room and she witnessed it. (coughs) And luckily he stopped because I shouted, you know, she's in the room, she's in the room. And so I just grabbed her and I held on to her all night and I just prayed really hard. And at that point I had actually been to the Coalition for Domestic Violence a couple times. Um, He probably sensed my me waking up a little bit, which made him angrier. Um, And after that night, um, it wasn't very long after that that I left him in the middle of the night. He hadn't come home, and I just took my kids, got in the car, and left. And um, after I left, I was within days. This is really crazy, Melanie. After just a couple days, I met another narc. Uh, I had gotten a job driving a blind man around. Um, The girls and I were living on a friend's sofa while I tried to make enough money to get an apartment. And at the yoga studio where the blind man attended, the teacher asked me if I'd like to clean mats as a trade for classes. And there was a young man in the class it was actually like a Hare Krishna temple or something, and he was a college student. He lived in the, or a graduate student. He lived in the building, and he was also in the class. And he came up to me after the class so nicely, and he had been said he'd been hearing my daughter, who was with me, and she was coughing, and he said that her cough was due to stress, and um, just offered to give us private lessons if I came early before school, and so. Just to make a long story short, that kindness just so quickly turned into manipulation. He began telling me that I owed him for his help, and that came in the form of car rides and listening to his problems. Eventually he wanted money. I couldn't even barely support myself and my daughters. Um, at At some point, he started talking about my children, and... I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone and telling her what was going on. And he was telling me lies about my children. And she helped me to see that he was manipulating me, that he was, you know, that my children were in the way of him being in total control over me. And he was trying to separate me from them. And I could not see that by myself. I was totally clueless. I couldn't see it, but I believed her, and so I walked away from him, and I did no contact and just even moved to a different part of the city. And then I wrote a letter to somebody I really, really trusted, Um, and um, that person was, his name was Swami Kriyananda, and he was just somebody who I'd read some of his books about how to meditate and um, he has a lot of songs. He had one song that was a lullaby and I used to listen to it at night before I go to bed because I couldn't calm down enough to sleep. I was always in so much fear. And so he was kind of the only person in the world that I thought to ask. So I wrote him an email and just told him everything that had gone on and what should I do. 
And he wrote back and just said, you know, um, cut everything out of your life, cut um, except for your work, and learn to meditate and pray, and soon everything will be okay. And so that advice seemed really good. He wasn't manipulating me or trying to tell me to do anything for him. And so I just did that. I, with all of my energy and willpower and I just trusted in it and it's hard probably for somebody to who hasn't gone through this to think you know in fact people have asked me this like you know how come you didn't know what to do why did you do that but really there was I was like a zombie or something you know I just I could not function I couldn't think couldn't process and I just needed somebody to tell me what to do. So that particular person who I had met um, in the yoga place, he was he was in the guise of a yoga teacher and healer. And, you know, my husband had been in the guise of a soccer star, handsome guy. <laughs> um, he he seemed to appear to be someone who was trying to help me and my daughters. But, you know, after that time, I just, about six months, I think it was, I I just ran away from him. So during that time, once I was all the way alone, um, I was in despair and confusion and fear. But... As I started to meditate, as I started to pray with all my heart and just focus on one step at a time, I started to realize that all of the problems, I was a common denominator. And it was so scary to realize that it overwhelmed me. And one night, and it was I just remember it was dark of my room, and I sat down to pray, and I was just shaking with fear. And with my whole heart, I just cried out to God for the first time ever. Well, the first time was when I cried out to be, you know, to get away from my husband. But the second time, like, I really cried out. Um, And I just cried and cried and cried because what I felt to say was that I was sorry that I had ignored God. For how many years, how many lifetimes, I don't know. I just knew that I needed to say I was sorry. And over time, I started to realize after that that God and my higher self were the same. And what I was really doing was saying sorry to my higher self for ignoring her and for mistreating her and for letting other people come in and tell me what to do and giving them the keys to the kingdom. And so at that point is when my life started changing. And isn't that absolutely true? You know, when we're dishonoring our own soul, we are enabling and we're putting up with it. Definitely. So, Prenny, that is just so huge. That is just really massive. How did you end up physically, mentally, emotionally as a result of all of that experience? Wow. Well, <laughs> um, at first I was just really good at lying and covering up 
the depth of the difficulty I was in. And in my mind, life was just hard, and I just was a fighter, and I just keep fighting, and, you know, it's just what I did. But by the end of it, you know, I was completely broken as a human being. Um, there was nothing left that was anything that could I could connect to, you know, my childhood um, or anything that felt like me. And um, so when my first child was born, I came back from the hospital alone from a C-section delivery, and I was stumbling around the house. I was trying to care for the baby. I was in pain. And that's when I knew I had like kind of the very first little, little baby wake-up call. I just knew that I'd made a terrible mistake with this man. But again, my solution was not to leave him, but just to be stronger. And um, I just made up my mind. I made a pact with myself to be stronger. And from the outside, I was the perfect mom. I was the perfect wife. Um, Kept the house clean, made good food you know, helped his family. Um, and I I truly loved my kids. I gave them my love and attention. Um, and I was able to cope with that part of life. Um, but inside, I was totally numb. And what I'd actually done was I cut off all the feeling and connection to my body and my mind and myself. So... I was able to function and do all those things, but there was no connecting to me. And so, um, but once I left him, that's when I had to start facing myself. And I went through like a major depression and it was chaos, you know. Um, Inside myself was chaos and it was really scary I was just, I don't know how, but I was barely able to cope with myself as a kid when I was alone. There was a period of three months I was really falling apart, Um, but I knew I couldn't. I mean, there's something that stopped me from completely falling apart because I had to make it. You know, I had to, we were on a really tight budget, um, and I had to make it out of that. And so I knew I needed help. And so I went through an agency that sends a counselor one time around. What they do is they, I knew I needed help with my kids because I felt like I was just falling apart so much and that I was worried that my daughters, you know, I was affecting my daughters. And and then I was worried what effect of me taking them away from their father would have and all this. And so they sent the counselor to your house to give your kids support. They'd play with them or do things like that. And, um, But I couldn't even be real with the person that they sent. I just made everything in the house perfect. And then he never came back again because he said we didn't need any help. Um, and during this period, I was really strict with my kids. I yelled a lot. I was intolerant. I didn't have patience. Um, I just didn't know, I mean, I was really at my last, just hanging on. And I broke down and I cried in front of them a lot. Um, 
I was also working as many as 18 hours a day. Um, I had nannying jobs, and then I'd haul them with me to babysitting jobs at night. And, you know, I was a really good babysitter and nanny. I didn't do any of that in front of the ki- those kids. Um, and sometimes at night we wouldn't get home till 2 or 3 in the morning. But, you know, I, what, I started, what, yeah. What Jimmy was going on with him at this point when he'd left? What, what was he doing? Well, at first he couldn't get in contact with us because he, you know, I left and I didn't give him any information. But then somebody told me legally I needed to give him our phone number. So he was trying to, he didn't, he thought that I was going to come around and come back to him. And he just couldn't believe that I had left. Um, I actually did see him one time after that. I just happened to be walking on the street, um, and he actually was just, you know, he was just, I can't even remember now, but he was just trying to play these mental games with me. And at that point, he wanted to talk to me, and I couldn't, I knew, because I'd been going to the domestic violence center not to talk to him. I knew that he'd get me all confused, and so I didn't talk to him. Um, mm-hmm. And he had um, he had a couple people following us, um, just seeing what I was doing mm-hmm. at one point. Yeah, where we were living. And Premi, what was... What sort of contact or what was happening with him and the kids at that point? Well, I was really trying my best to keep the kids away from him and me away from him, but I had no idea what was legal, what wasn't legal. I was just totally terrified somebody would come take the kids away. And so um, he was making phone calls, threatening phone calls. Um, He had sent somebody from his restaurant to follow me. Um, you know, one day I was in actually my employ- employer's car and I had agreed to let the kids see him at one point just because I didn't want, I just didn't know what to do. And I did let the kids go see him and he just started punching and kicking and messing up their car with all the kids in the car. He was just totally angry. Um, And then there was another time right in front of the kids when he just, he pushed me down. I saw him accidentally on the street, and I was with the kids, and he pushed me down. He would, when he did see the kids, he would get them ice cream and whatever, you know. He'd just fill them up with ice cream, but... When I asked my daughter after years later, you know, what was really going on, she just said that he just put him in the car. He had a van. He'd put him in the car and sit outside with his friends talking and smoking, and they just had to be in the car the whole time. Um, another, now I'm now as you're talking to me, I'm remembering more stuff. There was another time when I actually had let the kids spend the night at his house. I didn't realize the full extent of what I was facing with him, the abuse. I mean, I 
I didn't even know for that it was abuse for mm. that long, you know. So mm. I just was completely ignorant. And so I did let the girls spend the night, and they spent the night with two of our neighbors. And in the morning, um, he was just, after he had dropped my kids off at school, he wouldn't even take the other two girls to school. He put them on a public transportation bus, and Mm -hmm. they went to school that way. And it was just awful. Um, You know, mainly I was just in complete fear. Um, He... I had seen him a couple times, and during those times, he just threatened me. He would try to reason with me, too, about coming back to him, um, saying that he didn't understand what he'd done and that, you know, I was just taking it too far. You know, so he tried to go to that nice place, too, like we could really talk, and um, then he'd revert into being upset and... It just went on like that for a long time. Um, mm. And yeah, it must have then, been awful. It must have been awful. So, ha- you know... Could, well, I thought he was going to kill me because he had threatened to kill me. And yeah. um, I just thought he was yeah. going to kill me. Every time I went out at night, I thought he was going to be there. Yes, you know? yes. And I, and I know what that level of aquaphobia is like. It's literally paralyzing it's yeah you know that's that's complicated post-traumatic stress disorder that's all of those things it's, it's yeah. terrible so how bad did that end up for you the post-traumatic stress disorder oh gosh um well it was really debilitating i mean i was i didn't know what was going on with me but i could not think I couldn't function. Mm. Um, this was before I had, you know, this was like, I remember the first job that I tried to get, or second job that I tried to get to support us, I got fired from it because, well, I didn't get fired, I got demoted originally. I was in the office doing clerical work. Basically, I had to put some numbers from one sheet onto some on a, on another sheet. There was nothing to it, but I was so anxious, I couldn't even do it and they the boss thought that I was on drugs he couldn't understand why I was making so many mistakes I had no idea how to even explain to him I didn't know what was going I couldn't believe that I'd made the mistakes um I was just holding myself together you know with a smile on my face but inside I was totally crumbling I also got a bunch of traffic tickets um I just didn't stop at stop signs because I couldn't focus. My mind wouldn't work properly. And there were other times that I... I remember I got three in one day once for exactly the same reason. Yeah. And, I mean, and you don't even realize it. One time I was driving and realized I had been, like, partially blacked out, and I didn't even know where I was. Yes. I went through periods where I couldn't get out of my bed. I was just literally paralyzed. I couldn't even, I cried so much I couldn't cry anymore. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had done all of those things when I was with 
um, the narc, but it wasn't like that. Like, I mean, I remember being with the narc and having nightmares where I couldn't breathe, I couldn't move, and waking up unable to breathe and move. But at this point, all those things were like way more intense. Um, I'd wake up in the middle of the night unable to move, unable to breathe, unable to scream. And periodically, my lips would swell up. It would just, out of the blue, something would trigger me and my lips would swell up like golf balls. And there was really no reason, um, you know, that I had, there's no allergic reaction. It was just um, the trauma. And I also feel like, you know, that it was my lips. It was like it was hard for me to talk. I needed to say what was going on, but I couldn't say what it was. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't verbalize what was going on inside of me, Um, you know, for years then and, you know, until recently, you know, until last year, I was even afraid of men. I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't act normally. Um, There's just really, 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 really nothing left of me. Um, I could not find the person I was. It was hell. Um, I couldn't care for myself. I, I gained a lot of weight over the years with him. I didn't know how to start fixing myself. I didn't know how to connect to myself. And the worst part was I had no idea that what I had gone through was abuse and that there was something totally wrong. I just had no idea. So, so what did you try to do to get well, Primi? Well, um, the first thing I did was, um, you know, when I was in the process of leaving my husband was to... I got in at the Coalition for Domestic Violence. That's where I first learned that it was domestic violence, it was abuse, it was wrong. Um, But that help, it just went, it didn't really go beyond the victim mentality. So at first I realized, oh, I'm a victim. You know, this is a victim. This happened to me. Um, didn't go much further than that, but it did get me out the door from him. Gave me a plan how to get out. Um, then, and then I also, you know, I saw these other beautiful women and realized I looked, you know, I would never think that that had happened to them, but it had. And yeah, then after that, yeah. Then after that, I just started telling everybody. I started telling my family, my friends. I, it took so much courage. I just started telling everybody who knew me what happened, and I was asking for help because I really needed help. Um, and then I tried uh, Prozac during that time where I was just completely, I was just couldn't work. I was lost my job. You know, driving, all that was so hard. I was, so I went to a doctor and got prescribed Prozac. Actually, it was um, my childhood doctor. I had called her up on the phone um, because I didn't have enough money to go 
get in with anybody. And I just told her what was going on, and I felt like I needed something to help me mm-hmm. get control of my mind and my moods and my emotions. And she, so she t- tried, gave me a prescription for Prozac, and then there was another one I can't remember its name, but the one of them just made me manic. It was horrible. It had a really bad effect, and then the other one which was Prozac, it just was awful. It didn't really help me. It just made me feel sick and trapped inside myself. Um, I felt like a zombie. And then the next thing was I learned to meditate. Um, And this really was the first thing that started to help me. It helped me get in touch with my higher self. And um, it gave me a positive focus in my life. It gave me something where I only needed to rely on myself. I didn't have to rely on money or a doctor. Um, It just felt like for the first time I was able to sit with myself and that just felt good. Um, But the other side was that at the same time I was day by day just becoming more and more overwhelmed with how much was wrong with me. (laughs) And the more that I awakened, the greater the mountain was uh, that I had to cross. And it just seemed totally impossible. So um, at some point, um, I started looking for a community where my kids and I would be safe you know, I was looking for a good school, a good environment, um, and I found this community in Northern California and ended up being able to move there. Um, and, you know, that really helped. You know, being in an environment that's healthy with like-minded people, with consciously healthy people, um, there's a quotation, environment is every, is stronger than willpower. And I found that to be, moving here to be really helpful, especially for my kids, because I felt like they really needed healing time also. And since I was struggling to heal myself, I needed help. And so um, now we live here. It's very supportive, loving. Um, but when I got here, I was still in survival mode. And I was still plagued by anxiety. I couldn't get close to anybody. Um, I was just carrying a lot and just had no idea how to deal with it. Um, Another thing that I did was when I got here, I learned a meditation technique called Kriya Yoga. And that was taught by Paramahansa Yogananda. Um, He's no longer in the body, but he brought it to the U.S., and um, so I learned that technique. And it's really neat because it's, in a way, it's sort of like doing the modules because it works with energy. And it helps you to resolve old energy patterns that we create over lifetimes. And so doing that also helped. I could feel just layers of myself coming off. You know, I started seeing aspects of my authentic self coming out 
Um, but the main thing about Kriya is that I really felt that it's what brought me to the point where I was ready for what um, the you know the module healings. Um, I don't think I was ready before that, but doing the Kriya made me ready. Yeah. Another thing that I'd done a little before that was I did some neurotherapy, and that helped me. I just did 10 sessions. It just helped me to be able to go to work, basically. took a lot of anxiety off, and it was just a temporary fix. And then last Christmas, so it's a year ago, I had a resurgence of the PTSD. I didn't know what was going on with me. Um, For a week, I just had all those symptoms where I couldn't think straight. I was blacking out. I couldn't focus on anything. I couldn't read anything. And I didn't know what was happening. I thought I was having a brain breakdown. But then within a few days, all the emotions hit. And when the emotions hit, I knew, oh, I recognized it. Ah, this is from the past. This is the pain from the past. And I was thinking, and I knew I needed to go to work soon and I didn't we were on Christmas break and I didn't know what to do. So I went and got an appointment with a therapist, a cognitive behavioral therapist. And I went and I saw her and all she did was have me just talk about all the stuff that triggers me and I came home thinking, Oh my God, that's not gonna work. I just feel worse. And so I was remember I was standing in the kitchen And I just got onto YouTube, and even though I had typed in the word narcissist before, nothing had come up, but this time the very first um, video came up was one of your videos. And that first night, that was just, I knew that I had found the thing that was going to (laughs) work. And so... um, Yeah, so doing the, I sat down with the, I think it was, the YouTube video was a free introduction where you talked about um, quanta healing and you talked, you gave a healing, actually. Mm, And I sat down and I just went, you know, I just put the... (laughs) computer right in front of me and I just calmed myself, got a glass of water and after I don't know, 60 minutes or however long it was, I had a total experience where I I just experienced a healing that was deeper than anything I had felt and I knew that this is what was going to help me um, so, mm, I'm so glad you found it. And then yeah. you started working now. How long was it before you started working with now? Well, I mean, it was really instant because as soon as that happened, um, I just got online. I started reading, um, you know, everything about you and about the program, and it just all resonated with me, like 100% of it just resonated with me of what I had already been learning from yoga and meditation. Um, 
I resonated with your story, with your humility, and I could feel that the mission that you have to help people is really true, and it really touched me so deeply. I just wanted to be part of it. Yeah, I'm so grateful. And and then when I was looking, you know, I'm really just, it's so difficult for me, it was so difficult for me financially, then I thought, oh my gosh, how much is it going to cost? And then when you just said, you know, if you don't like it, I'll return your money. It's not a big deal. You can have the membership for life. <laughs> I just knew. I was so confident that this was all good and that I just wanted to do it. And so I I think it was that night or the next day that I signed up for the um, modules and to for the forum, and I'm so glad I did. And so then I, um, I just got involved with doing the first module like ASAP. <laughs> mm, and you did. You worked it. You worked it really hard. So Premi, because we're, we're running out of time, and I really want to get to the just really. This, this amazing part because this is what so many people struggle with is yeah. the abuse in proxy that happens in court, the custody battles. So share with us what happened. Okay. Well, I was in complete fear for the last four years about getting into a battle with my ex because... I was afraid he was going to take the kids. I was afraid no one believed me. And Melanie, I did not have any police records. I one time called the police um, when he had hit me, and I got a weird police officer who wouldn't believe me and he wouldn't make a report, you know. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so um, I just didn't have anything, and... I was just under total fear. So I was avoiding it. He was across the country. I was here. It seemed like maybe he'll just fade away, but he didn't. Um, He came out to visit. He was very threatening. He was very scary. Um, He would call on the phone. He would upset my oldest daughter, um, and I could just see the whole setup. The whole setup was he was going to do the same thing to them. And I was terrified of that. And I would get all the anxiety every single time he called. It would just destroy my life. It would wreck my day. It would turn me into a different person, the person I didn't want to be and that I was trying not to be. And so... When I decided to file for divorce and custody was um, around last Christmas, a year ago. That's because he was calling up and threatening me that he was going to take the kids. And he'd done this a whole bunch of times. But for some reason, this particular time, it seemed really real to me and... I felt he was capable of coming and stealing the kids and driving away or taking them out of the country. 
And so um, I decided to file, and that was the biggest decision of my life because it was so scary to do it because then I felt like I was putting this huge decision into someone else's hands. And what if they didn't believe me? And what if he was so charismatic they only believed him, you know, because he, he can totally be that way. As yeah. narcs and many people, everybody knows, you know, they just can become this other person. And so um, I filed, the date that I ended up filing was just, an interesting coincidence it was on martin luther king jr's birthday so to me that (laughs) meant a little something and um i filed my paperwork and i decided that i was not gonna do anything having to do with asking for child support because i did not want to if if that was going to be a reason that he would fight me more i decided to leave it alone that wasn't important to me. What was important was the safety of my kids. I went in and I talked to, I couldn't afford a lawyer. I had no lawyer. Um, I talked to the family law facilitator's office, which is basically one person in a tiny office that helps you fill out your paperwork. And um, she was really an angel. She just... um, she just has been seen this so many times. Um, and she gave me some advice to write up the whole story of everything that happened. And I did big, bold headlines um, kind of outlining basically all the character, his characteristics. Like this is when um, he became violent and then I listed all the different things and just all the way through the whole relationship It was like an 18-page document. Other people had told me not to turn it in like that, that nobody would read it. But she just said, turn it in. And I felt like she was really an angel. Um, She said, this is what you have. This is true. This is, you need to just submit this. So I did. And um, so we, he filed his paperwork. He was definitely going to fight me on custody I had filed for full um, legal and physical custody, um, and I also requested that his um, visitation be professionally supervised. And I said if he disagreed with anything that I had said, that we would get a, um, that I wanted the judge to order a, full custody evaluation, which can cost like $5,000 and up, and which I would probably have to be pay for, because he probably, you know, they don't for, force the other party to fork over the money. And I didn't have the money, but I knew I would get it if I needed to. Um, and so basically, my whole tactic, Melanie, was to be as severe as I could, and to not have any wiggle room, and to completely stand by my decision that I took the kids away from him for their safety, which is 100% true. And um, I just went with it with total commitment to my daughter's safety. 
and to um, ask for everything that I possibly could. And I'm really glad I did that because in doing that, um, I was at the same time doing the modules work and I was starting to realize within myself that that was really true. You know, (laughs) it was becoming real for me through this whole process. And every month that would go on, I would shed this old, you know, this fake self that was um, suffocating me and had been hurting me. And um, so we originally had the first hearing and he came and he just really tried to tell the judge, you know, that I was lying, that I was making everything up, and he, that he was going to come back with a lawyer. Um, but he also wanted the, the, he wanted it postponed. He said he needed time to find a lawyer, and he also was going out of the country for a few months. So we had to postpone it. And at that point, I was really in fear. I was scared to see him. I was scared he was going to come find us at our house. Um, In fact, he did come drive by where we lived. Um, The judge luckily granted the professionally supervised visitation at that point because he hadn't heard the case, but until he heard the case, he granted that. So we did have a professionally supervised visit. And that was one where there's an agency and you take the kids there. Um, There's someone who's writing a transcript of everything that he says to the kids and everything that they say to him. And in that transcript, he was just doing his thing, which was lying and telling the kids all kind of stuff and talking about himself like a big peacock. And, um, And then there was three months. And in that three months, I was working on the modules. And I mean, I had been working on them. But the progress started to get really fast for me. And one day, um, at the end of the summer, I woke up. And I just, as soon as I woke up, I knew something was totally different. I knew that something was, it felt like something was literally gone from my body, like someone had taken an organ. <laughs> but it was a really joyful feeling. And I knew what it was. I knew that it was the fear and anxiety, the um, heavy weight, which was my connection to him and me buying into the fear and the anxiety that it no longer controlled me, that I didn't believe it anymore. And that energy, that pattern of energy was not part of me anymore. It was just gone. And at that point, nothing bothered me about him or the situation or the legal proceedings. Nothing touched me. I just felt completely like a rock, like... um. I believed, I just knew everything was going to be okay 
And if for some reason it wasn't going to be okay, it was going to be something I could deal with, that I could handle, and then I could get the right situation for my kids. And so when we went back to court, I had been having somebody from the Domestic um, Violence Coalition come with me to court. They do that voluntarily to just help be a buffer between you and that person that you're going to see and just support you. They can't talk during court, but they can sit by you. And so I was prepared. You know, I came to court. I didn't even feel like I needed that person there at that point, but you never can be too safe, so I didn't want to say no to help. And I was prepared for anything. I was prepared to um, have him come with a lawyer. I was prepared to have to go talk to the mediator and try to work out something. I was just prepared to have to fork over money, you know, uh, to make that um, custody evaluation happen. And I just was ready. Um, And then when I got into court, he wasn't there. He did not. It seemed like he didn't show up. And we went through the whole proceeding and the judges said, you know what, I'm granting you everything that you asked for and you don't even have to pick up the phone. Well, I walked down the hall because I had to go to the divorce part right after that and he was on the phone in the courtroom and it had turned out that he had somehow been put through to the wrong courtroom. Um, And... There was no way of me telling him he'd missed the custody. That judge in there didn't know. But he was just carrying on with the judge and ended up having to have that part postponed another month. Well, oh, and there's one little part I forgot, but it's really important, Melody. Before that hearing, we had a hearing where it's not necessary to go, but they just want to check that you have all your paperwork. It's called a status update. And when I went, this judge is known for being completely stoic. Um, He hears all the cases in our county. He does not make (laughs) really eye contact with you. He's very, just keeps the same expression on his face all the time. Everybody knows it. And I'd been to court and I'd watched him too, so I knew And then at the end of my status update, which was very short, right as I was getting up, he just looked at me and smiled. It was the weirdest thing. But I felt that it was a reflection of my own inner state because Mm -hmm. my own inner state was confident and I knew I was doing the right thing for my kids. And I wasn't afraid. And so um, then, so back to the divorce part, when um, when we had to go back the next month for the divorce, he was he had told the judge that he was getting a ticket. He called me, he had his ticket. He called me from the airline and left a message on my voicemail saying he was at the airport and all this. The flight was delayed in Chicago, all this. And it turned out for whatever reason he couldn't get on the flight. And he didn't come. And it wouldn't have even mattered anyway because 
it was um, the paperwork that he had sent in never arrived to the court. So it was like all the stuff that prevented him from even, like, it was like there was an energy force field around me and the kids, and it prevented any harm to come to us. That's what it really felt like. And um, it was just a miracle. Wow, and it's huge, isn't it? That is such a case of the outer matching the inner. But as you said, you'd had that shift beforehand where something had just dropped into place. So profoundly, you just knew it. Yep, and all the titles to all the different modules, you know, the names of each module, it was like I'd been through each one of those and saw them flip for me. And by the time I got to, you know, not wanting to, not making it be about winning or losing. I was already there. I was experimenting with, you know, trying to, you know, just feeling sorry for his, that life that he's leading. Like, yes. what a miserable existence. Yes. And, um, you know, so I just, I don't know, I just, it just was really a miracle. <laughs> And I remember emailing you, messaging you on the forum back when I started this whole process and I'd messaged you a question about custody and testimony and it was totally from this place of fear and doubt. And through the months that passed after that, all the fear and the doubt went away and the outcome totally shifted. It's so beautiful. And I know this is going to inspire so many people, Prima. Yeah. Really know that this is possible. This this is possible. And it's wonderful you've come forward because there's been a lot of people that have had custody success in courts and property success in courts using the module work, but for legal reasons they haven't wanted to come forward and, and expose. But it's wonderful that you have because I really hope that that's going to create a wave of more people doing it that they understand that they can reach this level of miracle. So, yeah, yeah, it's... Well, it happened in my life too. You know, there were things that stopped in their tracks when I up-leveled that I never thought were going to (laughs) stop until I'd be destroyed. And they just stopped overnight when I hit that place of Mm -hmm. just complete solidness like you without the fear and without any concern about the future it just was and then the outside matches and it's like you just step into uh the true reality you know which yeah a true higher self-reality and not the false reality of fear yeah and it is really really true and there's it's just really true and real but it's so hard when you're just first starting out those first steps to imagine that reality but you've got to imagine it because it is real i remember just hearing you talk and i was so grateful for your really long emails <laughs> and because it's like it's not just a short thing that you're going to forget about you you read it and you read it and you read it and you read it and it just gets into your brain all the positivity and the possibility and the endlessness of possibility. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, which is exactly what narcissistic abuse is about, recovery. It's about getting out of that devastation into incredible possibility and libera- liberation and expansion. Yeah. So I just think your story has been amazing, Premium. Thank you so much for coming forward. Is there just one, any one last thing that you want to leave with people before we say goodbye? Um. Well... Let me think. I I just want to say that, you know, my life has completely changed. Um, you know, I I had been working on that prior to doing the modules, but when I started it, it just kind of went into a faster pace of change. Um, it was really a key to unlock myself. And um and let me just think for a second. Um, you know, another really important point for people with kids is that it's, you know, I parent better. I I feel like, the, you know, definitely I've made mistakes, but every single time I got up and I tried again. And my kids saw me try again and they've seen me be successful in so many ways, and I promised them that I was going to take care of them and protect them. And so they saw me being afraid. They saw me breaking down, but then they saw me get up. They saw me try again, and, you know, they got that feeling of safety. And so it's really a miracle And then the last thing I just want to say to everybody, all my brothers and sisters out there, is just to have courage. Um, Even if at first you have to pretend that you're courageous. I mean, fake it until you make it. Because it will will happen for you. you. You just have to put out a lot of energy to have no contact and to get your life back together. But... I found that the modules really ease the load and the most important thing that I found for me was just to do them with complete sincerity and openness. And that when you stay open, the changes just can take place within you. And the more sincerity you feel towards the process, just the quicker and the stronger the shifts will be. Um, it's not even like you have to think about them or do anything like that. You just say to yourself, I'm open to this and I'm really sincere that I want this change. And then um, I just feel like there's nothing more beautiful in life than developing a healthy relationship with your most expansive self. I just want to say that you'll never be bored You'll never hate yourself. You'll never hate your life again. And all of the shadows that you're feeling, right now they're going to lift away just like clouds burning off in the sun, just like that. And, you know, I and many others, and you will see too that the things that we've endured are really, really, they become a spiritual blessing. They become an awakening to your true self. And 
I just think it's the first of many freedoms. And each freedom becomes more and more joyful. You know, this one's really hard. It's really painful at first, but it gets easier. And I just wish for everybody just that sense of inner freedom and inner joy that I've been feeling since doing this program. So thank you so much, Melanie. Oh, Premi, you put all of that so beautifully. I don't think I could have put that more succinctly myself, truly. <laughs> that was so from the heart. Yeah. Premi, thank you so much for coming on. You've just been an absolutely wonderful guest. And Thank um, you. Thank you for yeah, everything thank you. you're doing, Melanie. I really I appreciate what you're doing and all of the people on the forum who contribute so much. Mm. They're amazing. They are amazing. <laughs> All right, Premi. Well, thank you for staying up late and good night, my love. Okay, good night. So, everyone, I hope you've really enjoyed Premi's show. Uh, it's a long one, but it's a very, very important one. And please know that you will see a transcript of that on my blog at blog.melanietoniaevans.com. And also, too, I'm sure Premi will answer any questions that you might have and uh, and I'll be there to comment and question, answer questions as well. And that's it for me for this week. So lots of love and bye-bye. <laughs>